0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 47, 1 through 48:22. Isaiah's description of the great deliverance in chapters 44 to 48 takes us through three different perspectives of the same event. This is prophecy at such a high level, a hundred years before the event. God pinpoints with precision this major, major event in salvation history. And this is not the first time the Bible has announced what is to come. God foretold through Moses in Deuteronomy that Israel would experience both the curse of exile and the grace of restoration. When all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind, in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, The Lord, your God, will restore you from captivity. That's Deuteronomy 30. That's Moses. That prophecy came 800 years in advance. God's old covenant test case with Israel is going to fail. Just as God knew before he created Adam and Eve that they would fail to be faithful, God also knew that after he established the nation of Israel at Sinai, they would fail to be faithful. Through 800 years, generations of Israelites wandered away from God, came back to God, wandered away, came back, and God's people continually pushed the limits of his grace and mercy. That limit will finally and irrevocably be breached and the prophecy of wrath fulfilled. God will spit the Israelites out of the land, just as he did the Amorites before them. That moment of justice will be carried out by Babylon. Isaiah adds that detail to the prophecy. Babylon will be God's instrument. Judah will be exiled. But just as Moses prophesied, Isaiah also prophesies redemption after the exile. There will be a new exodus. A future generation will be brought safely home. Isaiah sees these two crucial mileposts in salvation history the curse of sin culminating in the exile of Judah, followed by the grace of God to restore Israel after a new exodus. Isaiah is describing this great deliverance through three prophetic perspectives. We could label these perspectives as beginning, middle, and end. All three look to the future. At the beginning, we get the Cyrus prophecy, that specific and unbelievable declaration of restoration through an unknown leader named Cyrus. The Cyrus prophecy foresees the rescue from Babylon of an already defeated Israel. Isaiah began with the Cyrus prophecy. He then shifted to the middle perspective of Israel's response to that plan. God treats Israel's obstinate resistance with a firm stance. The same elements present in the beginning perspective are also present in the middle perspective. Judah's defeated, exiled to Babylon, they're freed from Babylon, and Israel's restored. God will not give up on Israel in spite of Israel. First the prophecy, then the response, now the fulfillment. That's beginning, middle, and end. This third perspective assumes again the defeat of Judah, the exile to Babylon, freedom from Babylon, and the restoration of Israel but from the perspective of the end, the perspective of the actual defeat of Babylon and the actual release of the Jews. So first we have the Cyrus prophecy, then we had Israel's response. Now in this lesson, we're considering the actual fall of Babylon and the release of the Jews. This third perspective has those two adjoining parts, the fall of Babylon in chapter 47 and the corresponding release of Israel in chapter 48. We begin with chapter 47, the fall of Babylon. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered, your shame will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name the Holy One of Israel. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the Queen of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I will not sit as a widow nor no loss of children. But these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction, about which you do not know, will come on you suddenly. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit by. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. Scholars divide this poem into six stanzas of roughly equal length. Those six stanzas can be grouped in pairs to make three parts with two stanzas each. I like Oswald's titles for these three parts, Babylon's Humiliation, Babylon's Pride, and Babylon's Helplessness. I don't usually alliterate, but just for fun, let's change that to Babylon's Humiliation, Babylon's Hubris, and Babylon's Helplessness. We start with Babylon's humiliation in 47, 1-7. The two stanzas of this part are marked off by an invitation to sit. The first stanza is verses 1-4. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind mill. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers." Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, his name, the Holy One of Israel. This is not primarily a prophecy of what will happen to the women of Babylon. This is a depiction of Babylon herself through the metaphor of a queen who has tumbled from the height of her throne to the lowest of lows, a slave departing into exile. She is tender and delicate because of her great wealth. She holds a privileged position, but she will sit on the ground without a throne. She will sit in the dust of shame and mourning. To take a millstone and grind meal is to do the work of a slave. To remove veil and skirt is to be stripped down like a slave. To cross the rivers is to go into exile as a slave. The uncovering of her nakedness and the exposure of her shame depicts a wealthy woman stripped of her garments and dressed as a slave. Taken in strongest terms, that metaphor suggests the brutality of rape. Babylon will be ravished by an invading army. And this is justice. We will find out why in the next stanza. This stanza ends not with the why, but with the who. God pours this wrath out on Babylon, and he does so in accordance with his nature. That nature is revealed in the name, Isaiah declares in verse 4, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, his name, the Holy One of Israel. Consider the parts of that name. He is Redeemer. That is one who buys back. Israel has been sold. God will buy them back. It's also the term used for the nearest relative who has the right and responsibility to buy back. God has close ongoing relationship with Israel. That has not ended She has been sold into slavery. He is kinsman redeemer. He holds the right of redemption. His name is also Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh is the covenant God of Abraham and Moses. Tight connection between Israel and Yahweh. Yahweh of hosts leads a spiritual army into battle. That's the host. Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts and also the Holy One of Israel. His nature is holy, set apart as pure and glorious. His holiness is specifically revealed through his relationship with Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel. Hebrew temple worship sets God apart as one who cannot be depicted with an idol. There's no idol in the Hebrew temple. The moral code, the holiness code, Leviticus 18, 19, 20, be holy as your God is holy. That was intended to set Israel apart as a reflection of Of the Lord's good and holy nature. Who causes Babylon the queen to sit in the dust? Israel's kinsman redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh, who made covenant long ago and who leads an unconquerable host into battle. That's who will make her sit in the dust. The next stanza provides Babylon with the reason for her humiliation. "'Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, "'for you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. "'I was angry with my people. "'I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. "'You did not show mercy to them. "'On the aged you made your yoke very heavy, "'yet you said, I will be queen forever. "'These things you did not consider, "'nor remember the outcome of them.'" This stanza continues the image of Babylon as queen, the Hebrew word can be translated literally as lady of kingdoms. It doesn't have to be queen of kingdoms. But the reference to throne in the earlier stanza in Babylon's status as an empire, as suzerain over vassal nations, affirms the translation queen of kingdoms. That's what we're supposed to be thinking. But she will be queen no longer. She must sit as she is told in silence like a slave. She will be taken into darkness, forgotten. God explains her humiliation. Babylon's victory over Judah was fundamentally an act of God. God judged his people for their persistent wickedness. God chose to profane Israel, his own heritage, rather than let Israel continue to degrade his name. The execution of God's just judgment was appointed to Babylon. If God called Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, how can he now hold Babylon accountable for the destruction of Jerusalem? The short answer is that he doesn't. God does not find Babylon guilty of destroying Jerusalem, burning down his temple, and carrying the Jews into exile. That was God's plan. Babylon was his servant. For what then is Babylon guilty of? Two accusations are made here. First, they're guilty for how they treated the Jews after having defeated them. You did not show mercy to them on the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. But there's a second, deeper reason God holds Babylon accountable. Babylon's treatment of Israel is symptomatic of a heart problem. She never acknowledged God as God. She never came to see herself as subservient. She gave credit to her own power, abilities, and wisdom. She misunderstood why it was that God appointed her to judge Israel. She failed to understand the lesson of God's discipline. If God would exile his own chosen people for their sins... What would he do to any nation that claims independence from him and superiority over him? Babylon failed to see that she also needs mercy from God. And in her not showing mercy to those captive, she shows that she doesn't imagine any need for mercy for herself. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Babylon did not consider that what she had done to Judah ought also be done to her, too, if she refused submission to the true and holy Lord of hosts. Babylon's attitude here transitions us into the second part of the poem, from Babylon's humiliation to Babylon's hubris. The two stanzas calling out Babylon's hubris are connected by the Hebrew word translated in verse 8 as securely and verse 10 as secure. The stanzas are also connected by the repeated claim, You have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That's hubris. Here's the first stanza, verses 8 and 9. Now then, hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I will not sit as a widow, nor know loss of children. But these two things will come on you, suddenly, in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. Now, then, indicates a connection to what has gone before. Babylon has not considered God or the consequences of her lifestyle. She is described in the first verse set here as a sensual one, translated in different English Bibles as a lover of luxury, lover of pleasure, wanton creature, pampered one. She loves her lifestyle of wealth and luxury. She has experienced security. She's a mighty empire. And she assumes she will continue to dwell safely. Her problem is internal. She says in her heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That's a direct contrast to this declaration about God that we've heard repeatedly from Isaiah, most recently in forty six nine. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Imagine the hubris, the pride of Babylon to claim the same for herself. Instead of believing in the sovereign uniqueness of God, she believes in the sovereign uniqueness of herself. I am, and there is no one besides me. She is central to her own world. The purpose of existence is to love herself. She determines her own destiny. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children. And that's a comment about being defeated in battle. Her men will not die. There will be no widows. The young men who go into war will not be lost. There will be no loss of children. Verse 9 directly contradicts that claim. She will lose children and she will become a widow the losses of military defeat, and it will happen suddenly as if in a day. There is no self-determined security for human beings over the long run. Every nation is dependent on the will of God for continued existence. An invading force will come on Babylon. Her sorceries and spells cannot prevent it. That's an interesting statement. In this last line of verse 9, we're encountering a shift from the usual perspective Isaiah uses when attacking man-made religion. To this point, the nations have been characterized by dependence on false gods that cannot save. Isaiah has focused his polemic on the impotent nature of the idol gods. They're not real gods. Now here in verse 9, he is still denouncing the same man-made religion of Babylon, but now from the perspective of human practice. This is the science magic ritual behavior the Babylonians use to manipulate the gods and control their own fate. The earlier claim in verse 8 that Babylon is a sensual one or a lover of luxury is not the same thing as calling her secular or without concern for the spiritual. She loves the material, yes, but she is also very much concerned with the spiritual as a means of maintaining power in the material world, And experiencing pleasure in the material world. Isaiah will address this as we go on. But Here he tells Babylon, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells, you will be overcome. The second stanza in this part about Babylon's hubris, verses 10 and 11, follows the same contrasting pattern as verses 8 and 9. Verse 10 reveals Babylon's heart and verse 11 reveals the consequences. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Babylon is not without wisdom. She has a store of knowledge and science and engineering and architecture and warfare. She has a developed religion inherited from the ancient Sumerian culture. But her knowledge of the physical and spiritual world has deluded her. She denies accountability to any higher power. No one sees me. Again, she says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. That's not a claim that she's the only kingdom that exists. It's not a claim that there are no gods. It's a claim that she's unique. She is sovereign. No one rises to her level. Certainly no one stands above who might see and judge. Her gods do her bidding. Isaiah declares this belief delusional in verse 11. Evil will come on you. You cannot charm your way out of it. You cannot atone for your sin. It will come and come suddenly. Your pride will not save you. We transitioned first from Babylon's humiliation to Babylon's hubris. Now we transition again to Babylon's helplessness. These final two stanzas are connected by a focus on Babylon's religious experts, by a play on the words stand and sit, and by the word save that appears in the last verse set of each stanza. The first stanza is in 12 and 13. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Ancient Near Eastern generals are well known for looking for spiritual signs before engaging a battle. They took the entrails of sheep or a crow flying across a field or an eclipse or a comet or the alignment of the stars. They took it very seriously. Battles were not fought and won on the earth. The earth mirrored a spiritual battle among the gods of warring nations. Warfare is just a specific example of this connection between material and spiritual. Success in agriculture, trade, family, every significant human endeavor depended on a positive connection to the spiritual realm. That does not discount human endeavor. Human beings were rightly rewarded by the gods for heroism and ingenuity. Astrology is a good example of the marriage of science and spirituality. The Babylonians were famous for their charting of the stars, their science. At the same time, they charted the stars to discover and manipulate the future. Magic involves practices on earth that manipulate gods and spiritual powers. So science, magic, ritual, it all comes together for Babylon. Babylon has credited her successes with her right understanding of the material and spiritual world. Isaiah challenges her to stand fast in the practices of that worldview. You believe your spells and sorceries, astrology and predictions have given you the edge. Well then, take your stand according to your own wisdom and knowledge. Embrace fully your worldview, and we'll see if it will save you from what is to come. The future Isaiah sees is in the last stanza, verses 14 and 15. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. Isaiah challenged Babylon to stand fast in her worldview stand and face God. That challenge contrasts the promise earlier that the queen will sit in the dust. Take your stand in your own wisdom and knowledge, but you will fall. The fall described here is gruesome. There will be fire, but it's not fire to warm you. The astrologers, priests, and magicians of Babylon will themselves be the fuel for the fire. They will not be able to deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Babylon has trafficked with a variety of spiritual advisors and practitioners from her youth, but those who are not consumed along with Babylon have wandered away and left her to burn. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. Isaiah's imagery enables us to imagine more than the future fall of Babylon. In fact, the conquest of Cyrus will spare the buildings and the people of the great city. The whole thing won't go up in flames. Leaders will certainly be executed, some people enslaved, some counselors removed, as would be the case in any ancient conquest. But the battle for Babylon will not end the Assyrian way with a pile of skulls outside a burned city. The Persian transition will be mild in comparison. That could be a problem if the sole intent of this prophecy was to provide details about Persia's defeat over Babylon. We might wonder, you know, did this come true? Did this not come true? But more is going on here. As with the earlier prophecy of Babylon's fall in chapter 14, the language of the prophecy elevates us beyond the specific instance of Babylon to the more abstract concept of the city of man. We are speaking about historic Babylon and about Babylon's fall to Cyrus at a particular time in history. At the same time, the specific historical event points us to a general spiritual reality. This is what I think that general spiritual reality is. Back in chapters 13 to 27, Isaiah addressed God's sovereignty over the universal human kingdom. Those chapters consisted of three cycles of five. The first two cycles are oracles against the nations. Motier titled the third cycle, Two Cities in Contrast, Endurance Through to Glory. The city of God, Zion, is contrasted in that cycle against the city of man, or as Isaiah calls it in 2410, the city of chaos. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine, all joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished, desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. The heart attitude of Babylon, described by Isaiah in chapter 47, is the heart attitude of the city of man, the city of chaos, and it will end in destruction. This is the general principle. It is the attitude of self-determination expressed as far back in time as the Tower of Babel, back in Genesis 11. We will bring God down. We will make a name for ourselves. We will manipulate religion and we will use our science to build a tower to allow us to do so. That is the city of man, human society, independent of God and confident in her own ability to manipulate the material and spiritual worlds. Babylon here in our present passage is both the historic city-state of Babylon and a representative instance of the city of man. Now Isaiah summed up the city of man heart attitude in verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. That's the heart of humankind. We can do without God. Through our own wisdom and knowledge, through our political systems, our own economic systems, our own spiritual systems, we can create our own definition and ensure our own destiny. And the more a particular kingdom or nation on earth succeeds, the more confidence, the more pride she places in her own political, economic, and religious culture. John the Apostle understood this prophecy about Babylon. He understood that it pointed to a general principle about human society. So through the last book of the Bible, John uses the metaphor of Babylon to speak about Rome, to speak about Rome's political, economic, and religious systems. Because at the time of John's writing, Rome was the great specific historic example of the city of man that comes into conflict with the city of God. And and at that time, the city of God is the church. At the same time that Babylon served John as a metaphor for Rome, his apocalyptic description does what Isaiah's poetry does. It elevates his vision above any one historical instance to point us towards the ongoing spiritual reality of conflict between the world and God, between the city of man and Zion. Here's a paragraph from John that quotes Isaiah directly. This is Revelation 18, 1 to 8. I'll skip through the text to emphasize the connection to Isaiah 47. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins And receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. To the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart. I sit as a queen. And I am not a widow. And will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. The city of man grows confident in her successes. But all the grand systems she develops to ensure wealth and security will in a day come crumbling down. Isaiah says not only to Babylon. Isaiah says to the city of man. To the heart of the Tower of Babel, stand up. Embrace your science. Embrace your spiritualism. Embrace your rituals, religious and otherwise, and see how you do. It's all going to end in a lake of fire. This will not be a fire that you sit and warm yourself by. This is a fire that will consume human wickedness and sin. Self-definition and self-determination are illusions. In the end, every human advisor, guru, professor, politician, priest will have wandered in his own way. You will find that in the city of man... There is none to save you. John says, come out of Babylon. Come out of the city of man. Well, that's what's going to happen to Israel. There's another half to this perspective of the prophecy. So at the same time that Babylon falls, Israel is redeemed. Israel is released. We'll consider the release, chapter 48, in our next lesson. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah then check out our resource page at observetheword.com You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch the Gospel of John and the book of Acts